Live from the United States, where the law is far too often the crime, this is hell. And when it comes to supposedly protecting the public from terrorism and violent extremism, law enforcement can often end up violating the legal rights of citizens who have not, nor have they ever committed any crime at all. With so much backlash to the events of January 6th at the U.S. Capitol, Many liberals and those on the left have called for a much-needed and long-awaited crackdown against white supremacy, and rightfully so. But when giving expanded powers to law enforcement, those powers can often be turned against those who actually oppose white supremacy. One of the ways in which law enforcement has done that of late is through something called the Countering Violent Extremism Model, which has been a tool of law enforcement dating back at least to the Obama administration when it targeted Muslims. That same model was continued under the Trump administration when it was used against members of the Black Lives Matter movement. And it continues today under the Biden administration, which is supposedly aiming it at white supremacists, but it still can be used against whoever has gained the attention of law enforcement. In other words, the same tools used in reaction against those involved in January 6th can quickly be turned on those who are in direct opposition of the far right's attempts to overthrow an election. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Azadeh Shashaani and Fatima Ahmad, co-authors of an article at the Progressive magazine titled The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. After the January 6th attack, federal surveillance programs expanded to counter white supremacist violence have made black and brown communities their main target. Azadeh is legal and advocacy director with Project South, which organizes locally in the South Atlanta neighborhood to defend against the effects of gentrification, structural racism, and other forms of oppression while building grassroots resident and youth power to transform their neighborhood towards a vision of economic and racial justice. She is a past president of the National Lawyers Guild and director of the National Security Immigrants Rights Project for the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia. Azadeh is a human rights attorney and advocate with extensive experience in impact litigation, advocacy, human rights documentation, movement building, public education, and training of attorneys with a focus on immigrants' rights, defending the rights of Muslim communities, human rights, and civil liberties. Azadeh's international human rights experience includes serving as a trial monitor in Turkey, an election monitor in Venezuela and Honduras, and a member of the jury in People's Tribunals on Mexico, the Philippines, and Brazil, and has also participated in international fact-finding delegations to post-revolutionary Tunisia and Egypt, as well as delegation focused on the situation of Palestinian political prisoners. You can follow Azadeh on Twitter at a. Shasha Ani, that's A-S-H-A-H-S-H-A-H-A-N-I, and find out more about Project South at projectsouth.org. Fatima is the executive director at the Muslim Justice League, whose mission is to organize and advocate for communities whose rights are threatened under the national security state in the United States. Led by Muslims, 
their organizing brings justice for all communities deemed suspect. She leads the Muslim Justice League's efforts to dis- dismantle the criminalization and p- policing of marginalized communities under national security pretexts. She joined as deputy director in 2017 and increased MJL's focus on organizing within and collaborating across impacted communities to resist and subvert surveillance. That included growing the Building Muslim Power Collective, a group that shifts power through creative actions. Fatima also leads the National Stop CVE Network, spearheads MJL's research, and is a a leader in the donor-advised funds campaign of the Public Good Coalition. She serves on the board of directors for Political Research Associates, a social think, social justice think tank, and is also a Boston Neighborhood Fellow at the Boston Foundation, one of the oldest and largest community foundations in the nation. Again, Fatima previously organized in North Carolina with Muslims for, just, for Social Justice, the American Friends Service Committee, and the Stop CVE at UNC campaign. That's Stop Countering Violent Extremism Programming by Law Enforcement at the University of North Carolina. You can follow Fatima on Twitter at Fatima Ahmad and find out more about the Muslim Justice League at Muslim Justice League. Dot org. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, anything new by you? How have you been? I've been very well. I should mention that it is only Fatima joining us this morning oh, okay. for the interview. Azada was not able to make it. Um, but yeah, I'm doing very well. Uh, I watched this Frederick Weissman documentary last night. I don't know if you've ever seen any of his work. It's pretty long, usually. It was a documentary about... Monrovia, Indiana. There's a little crummy town in the middle of Indiana. And uh, it was great. Kind of like watching paint dry, but <laughs> riveting at the same time. Sort of sublime. What's uh, the name of the movie? It's Monrovia, Indiana. That's it. He always names it what it's about. His first movie was about, um, in the 60s, psych wards. It was called Titicult Follies. And I don't know, he must have got burned because that's a weird name. Yeah. And then every time after that, he just names it what it is. He names it like high school, welfare. And, uh, you know, like ballet, and it's always just about that. These are great documentaries, but, yeah, boringly named. <laughs> so, wait, I know that in the back of my head somewhere there's something in from history classes or something about mm-hmm. Monrovia. Do you, what's the, what was the si- issue in Monrovia? I don't know. I mean, I think he sort of selected it just because it was such a humdrum town. Uh, I mean, it's just a thousand person town a little bit southwest of um, Indianapolis. I mean, I mean, it's probably selected just because there's a million towns like it i don't think there's any like oh. great huge murder there or anything it's an like, example of how dull the world can be yeah exactly except you know when you really let the cameras go it i don't know maybe if you believe in the essential decency of white rural culture it's really touching but i was watching it as sort of a sci-fi horror movie you know like, <laughs> it's pretty creepy <laughs> i see i see how those two things can slide one can slide into the yeah, other pretty it's a quickly Rorschach test. <laughs> exactly uh so i started off my week by celebrating my birthday, which was great, but I came over here to the office to print out the next day's notes, and once the bartender downstairs wished me happy birthday, very publicly, people started buying me drinks, which I I, I truly appreciated. However, after the bartender and three bargoers 
bought me pints, I completely lost track of time, got home late from my birthday dinner, and I fell asleep not long after, at least I think, and now I, I, I think I'll be going through the whole thing again this evening during This Is Hell Office Hours, which is our meet and greet that's really a drink and think, which happens every Wednesday at the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. Not that I'm complaining, but celebrating my birthday can be exhausting. Office hours begin at about 6 p.m. and run till 10 p.m. or until I leave, which sometimes is earlier, sometimes is later. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? Isn't that sweet? I guess we just kind of heard. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, the uh, person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever. This is Hell swag you want. The This is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks to all of you for your amazing support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio or you can direct message us it to us via twitter at this is hell radio or you can email chuck or well email this is hell radio at gmail.com because in the final hour we don't really have access to my email. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth. We did get an email sent to us at chuck at this is hell.com immediately following our conversation yesterday with Sophie Lewis on liberation through abolishing the family. I know, you got to go back and listen to it. Past guest and contributor to This Is Hell, author and blogger John K. Wilson writes, Hi Chuck, happy birthday. I was just listening to your interview with Carrie Leiterson from last week on Evanston, Illinois' historic reparations program. So I thought I'd drop you a line since I haven't seen you in a while. Sorry I was out of town for the 26th anniversary party last month. By the way, I'm writing a new book for Rutledge, the Attack on Academia to be published in the fall of 2023. So maybe we can talk about that book next year. It will include a chapter about politics and censorship in Evanston and at Northwestern University, where you broadcast every Saturday morning. And I heard you on the radio mentioning that you often visit Bloomington, Normal, Illinois on your vacations. Did you know I was born and raised in Normal and often returned there? I'm surprised we never have talked about it. And then I remembered, there's n- absolutely nothing interesting about Normal to discuss. And I, I cannot think of an, another town that's better named than Normal, although Monrovia, Indiana. By the way, I had a piece in the Washington Post online last week about why conservatives hate academic freedom again. Thanks, John. Uh, thanks, John. He signs it. Thanks, John. Uh, the article John posted at the Washington Post is headlined, Conservatives have turned against academic freedom again. Here's why. The right thinks campuses are hopeless and has resorted to repression as the answer. In the article, John writes, For decades, conservatives charged that free speech on campus allowed leftist academics to run amok, preaching ideas antithetical to American values. Then, for a brief time beginning in the late 80s, conservatives embraced free speech on campus as a way to ensure that right-of-center voices would be heard. Today, however, many on the right have begun to see universities as hopeless, 
and are resurrecting the older approach of limiting what they see as dangerous ideas on campuses. These conservative critiques expose how in 2022, neither side in the campus speech wars wants to protect the other's ideas. Even so, as they engage in this spiraling battle, the structure of higher education has changed radically in the past few decades. A campus culture once dominated by tenured professors has been replaced by hordes of vulnerable adjunct instructors and vast armies of administrators, often with no education about or attachment to academic freedom, increasingly controlling campuses with the goal of squelching controversy. The left and the right both regard a principal devotion to academic freedom protecting all views as a dangerous conceit when faced with vile enemies, and these administrators agree with both sides seeking to eliminate offensive speech. Although campuses continue to pay lip service to academic freedom, it is increasingly a concept with more enemies than devout defenders. As conservatives return to the rhetoric of their repressive roots denouncing academic freedom, the big question may be whether they will even face opposition. Thanks, John. I truly appreciate you getting back in touch with us. Great to hear from you again. And yes, we would love to have you back on the show next year, I guess. We have to wait an entire year when your new book, The Attack on Academia, will be coming out. Also, to clean things up a bit, I would not call my visits to the twin cities of Bloomington and Normal, Illinois, a vacation per se, which implies leisure or free time and recreation or enjoyment while not working. Although it is all those things to some degree, it's more of a family visit than a holiday. What I'm trying to say, and I and likely failing, is it's really hard to qualify any visit whatsoever to Bloomington Normal, Illinois as a vacation. I dropped something here and now I have to pick it up. Uh, you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com with your constructive and destructive criticism, as well as guests and topic ideas. And if we have your suggested guests on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview. Coming up, our conversation with Fatima on surveillance and detention of people of color as a counterterrorism strategy by law enforcement. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, the question from hell is, what should our beloved host, Chuck, that's me, do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? What should our beloved host, Chuck, do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at Patreon. Dot com slash this is how Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth and we'll tell you who we have scheduled to be on next week's show. All of that coming up here on This Is Hell, your eyewitness to grief. This is hell and the grief many experience under the watchful eyes of law enforcement based on racial, ethnic, or religious profiling under the name of protecting the public from terrorism by law enforcement is troubling indeed, here to help us have a better understanding of how and how not to deal with the aftermath of the events of January 6th. Fatima Ahmad is co-author with Azadeh Shashaani on an article at the Progressive Magazine titled, The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. Welcome to This Is Hell, Fatima. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on our show. Again, you can follow Fatima on Twitter at Fatima A. Ahmad. Find out more about the Muslim Justice League at muslimjusticeleague.org. So uh, we've, we've had guests on the show in the not too recent past who have suggested that justice as it functions in the United States, in particular when it comes to capital punishment, which is not what we're talking today, but is driven 
fueled by vengeance. How much do you think the reaction to January 6th, especially by liberals and those who may identify themselves as being on the left, how much is that response about justice and how much is it rooted in vengeance? And are the two things separate? They are separate and it's definitely, you know, to me, I think a lot of the response has been both rooted in vengeance, but also rooted in sort of a shallow understanding of how things work today. I do think, you know, there are a lot of people who just love the idea of calling white supremacists terrorists. You know, you'll hear people, including Muslims, say, well, we've been called this for so long. And obviously, this violence is really bad. So we should call it, you know, this this same terminology without understanding that, you know, we can't reclaim some of this language and we for sure can't reclaim or repurpose, uh, you know, the law enforcement system or the surveillance state, right? Um, but I do think, yeah, in the face of really visible white nationalist violence, I don't know that it's, you know, actually increased. And I think a lot of people uh, see it as an increase, but I think it's just a bit more visible uh, for sure since 2016. Yeah, you have people really with this sort of gut reaction to say, you know, let's turn things around and onto them. That just made me think about how right after 9-11, there was this very brief moment where there was a push for, like here in Chicago, to refer to gangs as terrorist organizations, to refer to gang members as terrorists. So what happens to justice when it is driven by vengeance? Or more importantly, I guess in this example, or fear of terrorism, what happens to justice when it's driven by vengeance and fear? I mean, a really good example is what you just brought up. Our response to 9-11, right, was driven by vengeance. And we waged war in multiple countries, right, including Afghanistan, including Iraq, uh, predominantly those two countries, which are still very much suffering the consequences of that, right, devastating levels of violence and displacement. And yet it didn't address the root problem, right? If we're talking about justice, how are we actually addressing the root causes of why these things happen, right? And in both both instances, in terms of 9-11 and January 6th, some of those root causes are white supremacy, right? But we're not taking that seriously. Instead, we are responding with, more violence, and then we're shocked when there's, again, more violence in response to that. That makes sense, right? Violence always begets violence, right? Absolutely, right? You know, you really have the U.S. government sort of saying, well, we don't know where any of this is coming from, you know, what could be, uh, you know, the the spark here. Uh, but almost always it's quite clearly us and the violence that we have uh, waged both globally and domestically. And you write, as the January 6th hearings continue, legislators have rushed to show that they are doing 
something, anything about white supremacist violence. This includes a failed attempt to pass the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act after the racist murder of 10 black people in Buffalo, New York. But expanding the counterterrorism complex is not the answer to white supremacist violence. In fact, these measures often wind up reinforcing systemic white supremacy. So how can that happen? How can measures meant to address white supremacist violence end up reinforcing systemic white supremacy? Yeah, so the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act is a really great example of this. I think some form of it has come up, you know, over the past few years. A lot of what we've seen is not just in response to January 6th, but actually, you know, in response to Trump, in response to the Charlottesville Unite the Right rally, sort of multiple incidents um, over time, including Buffalo. And we keep seeing, you know, these policies pushed and really applauded by progressives, but these policies are to expand the power of law enforcement, of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice in particular, the FBI, which actually I think this Saturday is the anniversary of the, you know, creation of the Department of Homeland Security. And how quickly have we forgotten that DHS, you know, didn't exist more than 20 years ago. And now I think it's maybe the second largest, uh, you know, department in the U.S. or, you know, it's sort of one of the largest infrastructure changes um, that the government has had since the, the creation of the Department of War, which is, of course, now known as the Department of Defense. And we keep you know, funneling so much money and so much power into it. And what a lot of people don't know is regardless of the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, those agencies already got more power in the wake of January 6th. You know, they've already gotten more funding. DHS already announced that they're going to expand, uh, you know, a social media monitoring initiative. And I don't know, there, there's a million ways I could explain it, but I think the most obvious thing is just, you know, these are the same agencies that were whipping Haitian migrants at the border. Like, how is it that we think that the agencies that have been deeply responsible for white supremacist policies, white nationalist policies, enforcing them, that they will somehow be the solution? You know, when you look at the FBI, the way that they've treated Muslims, that's not a post 9-11, you know, sort of new uh, thing that came about. That's actually a whole century of that. Since the uh, inception of the FBI, they have looked at Muslims as a fifth column. They have surveilled Muslims uh, and, you know, Black folks and leftists pretty broadly. And so how can we think that funneling, yeah, more money, more power, especially surveillance power and policing power into these same institutions is going to solve anything when we, you know, have seen every example of it, you know, for, for at least a century of what, what they've actually done with that power. So as the anniversary of the Department of Homeland Security's beginning is coming up this weekend, uh, how much do you think the Department of Homeland Security has become a threat to American security? 
I mean, a huge threat. They were just celebrating um, uh, see something, say something. I think they called it like see, say day. Uh, and, you know, this institution, right, has not only now criminalized all of immigration, right? That's one of the biggest changes uh, that happened with the creation of DHS. Not to say that our immigration policies were in any way, uh, you know, welcoming and friendly prior to that. Again, our immigration policies have always been, uh, you know, a form of white supremacy for sure. But literally to put all of immigration under, you know, even just this term, right, homeland security. But then I think a lot of people don't realize that DHS is not just looking at immigrants. Uh, and in fact, is amassing data on everyone at this point. I think almost every week now, we're seeing more and more news about ICE and DHS, uh, you know, collecting sort of massive, uh, you know, surveillance information on, you know, almost anyone, right? We're talking about the same agency that runs Customs and Border Protection, right? We all are going through CBP, we're all going through TSA when we travel. And in fact, you know, for Muslims, it doesn't matter if you're a US citizen, you get harassed every time you are traveling, you know, it, we literally call it flying while Muslim, you expect to be not just patted down uh, based on your physical appearance, right, you're presenting as Muslim, uh, which is the most obvious thing that people can see, but also CBP will pull people aside, pull you into a room and question you, question you on your faith, right, question you on your religion and your politics. Uh, and this has been happening for so long. And I think the really fascinating thing now is, you know, right-wing people now feel like these things are going to be turned against them. And they are actually, you know, concerned about uh, how they're being treated. So something like, you know, the no-fly list, we've seen lots of progressives say, well, let's use, you know, DHS's no-fly list against white supremacists, again, to much applause. And then you have, uh, you know, so Republican legislators like Paul Gosar, I think, uh, introduced, you know, a bill to try to get rid of the no-fly, uh, the, the no-fly list, which is, uh, you know, pretty, pretty weird for, for me as someone who absolutely wants to get rid of it, um, to now see this coming from, you know, the, the people who of course cheered on and, and very much uh, drove many of these, these policies when they felt like it would just be aimed at Muslims are now, you know, concerned about it turning around against them. Just like when those who are liberals or those who are on the left see legislation only targeting white supremacists, that legislation again can be turned right back against them. The Democrat, the, the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, it states that uh, it, it creates an interagency task force to analyze and combat white supremacist and neo Nazi infiltration of the uniformed services and federal law enforcement agencies. It directs the FBI to assign a special agent or hate crimes liaison to each field office to investigate hate crimes incidents with a nexus to dom domestic terrorism. In other words, 
It expands and coordinates the DHS, the DOJ, and FBI role in domestic terrorism, and in particular white supremacist and neo-Nazi infiltration of the uniformed services and federal law enforcement agencies. As the bill, which failed, specifically mentioned white supremacists, particularly within law enforcement agencies, why do you believe this type of act would, in the end, target those who are not white supremacists, who even oppose white supremacy? If it has the specificity in it, why do you think it would be turned against those who are not neo-Nazis and within the uniformed services and federal law enforcement agencies? I am so glad that you asked this. Uh, it's one of my yeah, favorite things to, to help people unpack that. It is actually surprising that the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act explicitly mentioned white supremacy. So I will say, for the most part, when these policies come out, uh, when programs are, are happening, and again, they get a lot of applause as if they are tackling white supremacy, typically they actually only say domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism, which can and does apply to everybody. And in fact, you know, these same agencies have said their definition of domestic violent extremism is both sides. You know, they have uh, sub-designations of racially motivated violent extremism, which again might sound like white supremacy, but I'm sure you can see how, you know, under maybe a different administration that could be used to target Black Lives Matter. Uh, they even say that there's abortion-related violent extremism, and that includes both pro- and anti-abortion, uh, ex quote-unquote, extremism. So I will say first, you know, most of these policies, and even some of the DTPA, uh, you know, is broadly about domestic terrorism. And then, yeah, you have this specific piece um, about you know, rooting out white supremacy from law enforcement and from the military. And I think this has gotten a lot of um, attention. I believe uh, even the Republicans have really explicitly pushed back on this uh, in, in recent months. But we know, you know, one, again, even within these agencies, when uh, when you, you know, kind of tell them to look for extremism, right, who might be targeted? There was actually an example of a Black woman in the military who had been, you know, doing really well in her position and converted to Islam. And soon after, started getting really negative evaluations and feedback. And apparently, you know, her uh, colleagues were concerned about, I think, her Malcolm X quotes and stickers um, and her, you know, becoming more political. So we know, again, anytime these programs are happening, like who is actually going to be targeted by this? But then again, when this explicitly says, you know, that they're going to look at white supremacy, what could be wrong with that? Well, I grew up in a place that was quite explicitly racist. I grew up in an Appalachian town, pretty small, and I think the population has always been decreasing except for the building of multiple prisons in my hometown. 
So our local industry is very essentially prison-based, and we have lots of people who, you know, went off and joined the military because that might be your only uh, your only way out, or maybe even your only way, uh, you know, to get a college education, for example. And you know, you might think like, okay, well, we can we can you know, find individual people in the military or in these positions who have a swastika tattoo and kick them out. But that's such an individual response. That's really putting a Band-Aid on like a big, uh, you know, bleeding wound and not addressing the fact that these agencies, again, military, especially are the purveyors of white supremacist violence. To say, well, we're gonna find the individuals that are that are concerning while these same institutions have murdered thousands upon thousands of Muslims, Afghans, Iraqis, right? Other people uh, who look like me. It's just ludicrous, right? Like what, what is the, the point of that? These agencies are not, you know, taking responsibility for what they have actually done, right? These institutions are not only, you know, doing white supremacy, right? They are, again, the main purveyors of white supremacist violence, but also the rhetoric around the wars, right, is part of what has, you know, created so much of this. So coming back to my hometown, you know, the the troops who committed the atrocities at Abu Ghraib, who committed that torture, they are from my hometown. You know, that military company was based in my hometown. And I completely understand why people in my hometown, you know, would go and do something like that. You know, the first week after 9-11, I was harassed constantly about being Muslim. People put up signs in their yards about, you know, uh, things I won't (laughs) say, say here now, but really violent things about Muslims, really disgusting slurs, right? And that was, you know, that was what was in the air. That was what was being pumped out at the time, right? That vengeance that we that we talked about earlier. So of course people were susceptible to that. Of course, kids that I grew up with, you know, got swastika tattoos in high school. You know, people who I used to play with when I was young, my, myself and my brother even. And I've seen that, you know, up close and personal. I know what that violence looks like. But to think that a program that tries to, you know, identify just individual people who might have bought into, you know, what everyone is pushing is just ridiculous. It's the same thing with January 6th, right? To try to, to try to figure out, well, like which one of my neighbors might have gone without acknowledging the president told them to go and do this, right? The president of the United States said, yeah, come here, right? And lots of legislators did too. That's the main problem, right? We have to look at it systemically. We have to actually address 
the major causes of this kind of violence. That's the, you know, uh, not seeing the forest for the trees. That's targeting individuals instead of the structure. How did you feel about the way in which many on the left, many liberals, many people who would be self-identified Democrats, were rushing to their computers following January 6th to see if they could identify people who were within the crowd to, in a way to combat white supremacy. What do you think was missed in their understanding of what white supremacy is when they were just looking for, you know, uh, trying to get people arrested for being uh, participating within the January 6th events of January 6th? Yeah, again, I think it's that that vengeance response, right? That's it's moving from a gut reaction without having the sort of political foundation to understand, you know, what can we actually do about white supremacy? Like if you are rushing to your computer to do that, but have not been involved with racial justice organizing in your neighborhood, right? Have not been accompanying uh, immigrants to, you know, their ice check-ins, accompanying, you know, black folks to to court, um, actually, you know, doing that kind of day-to-day work, then where is that response really coming from, right? How is this actually connected to a larger move for, you know, a movement for racial justice, for addressing white supremacy? Because I think if your whole thing is, again, I just want the tables turned, right? I want them to get arrested. I want them to be treated uh, the same way. And you see this sometimes where people will say, well, if it was Black people who, you know, went to the Capitol on January 6th, they would be treated differently. Like, yeah, of course, we know that by now. You should know that by now. And what are you actually going to do about that? at, you know, a systemic level, not at this very, like, individualized level. And I will say, to be clear, I think there are lots of awesome, you know, um, organizing uh, sort of groups uh, and folks who address, who, uh, sorry, identify white nationalists and white supremacists, not to, you know, get them arrested, but actually to build up community knowledge. We've seen that here um, in Boston. There's been actually a lot of presence from Patriot Front um, and from local neo-Nazi groups in, you know, the recent, in the past year, basically. Um, And there are a lot of great folks who are identifying them, helping people understand, like, who they are, um, and who also know that the police are not, (laughs) the police are not the answer, right? The police are part and parcel of the problem of white supremacy. You write that after the January 6th attack, the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI added new units and social media monitoring initiatives to supposedly tackle domestic terrorism, as you were mentioning earlier. These agencies and initiatives refuse to name white supremacy. Rather, they use broad categories like racially motivated violent extremism and abortion-related violent extremism, giving cover to them to investigate any ideologies in that range. So does the terminology for things like the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, does it need to be vague, which you know makes it vulnerable to reinterpretation, in order for it at least to give the appearance of being objective and supposedly apolitical? Is, are they confined to those limits because 
and as vague and uh, overreaching, if you will, because that's the only way such legislation could be passed to make it seem as if the law is above politics or law enforcement is above politics. I mean, I don't think that, you know, the people trying to pass these policies are uh, particularly strategic or thoughtful about their, about their, you know, language. Um, I do think, you know, it's really interesting prior to the Trump era, you know, anytime you talked about terrorism, it's obvious who we're talking about, right? Like they could actually use vague language in the past and still be pretty clear that they were talking about Muslims. The first version of the countering violent extremism program was that, you know, Obama launched it and it was called countering violent extremism. And he said, we're gonna fight all types of extremism. But who comes to mind when you tell people to spot the terrorist, right, in their community. And all of the uh, programming that they did was focused on Muslims. The behaviors that they were encouraging people to look for were signs of Muslimness, starting to wear the hijab, going to the mosque more frequently, uh, speaking out against foreign policy. You know, they could be really clear without being explicit. <laughs> that this was about Muslims. And then you had Trump actually say, oh, I'm going to rename it countering Islamic extremism. And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, at least then it would be obvious to people what this actually is, right? It was very obvious to, um, to the rest of us. So now I think, I do think progressives and Democrats in particular are trying to, yeah, reclaim this neutrality, even though we said, you know, we're not, we're not asking for equal opportunity surveillance. We're surely not asking for, you know, the same people who have brutally policed, you know, black and brown organizing for, for decades to uh, have this power to go after this broad concept of uh, of domestic terrorism or domestic violent extremism. But these agencies also are now being explicit that it, you know, is inclusive um, of, you know, everyone. Like I was saying earlier about how the abortion re related extremism is a category. You know, I think that is a move to actually obscure who they're looking at, right? If they no longer have a designation like Black identity extremism, then it's really hard actually for us to point out that, you know, you've only been going after BLM. If now everybody is grouped under racially motivated violent extremism, how will we, you know, even know what they're, what they're actually doing? But again, I think, you know, the root of this is like, we're not asking for equal opportunity surveillance. There is no such thing as equal opportunity surveillance, right? Because I think, you know, people fall into this trap of thinking about the left and the right and thinking that there are extremes on both sides rather than 
thinking about, you know, what is the issue at hand? If we are talking about white supremacy, if that's what they're claiming that they care about, then what's wrong with being extremely against white supremacy, right? What is wrong with standing up for racial justice? That's not a, it's not a two sides or both sides uh, kind of issue. So I think, yeah, I think people fall for this trap of let's, let's have equal opportunity surveillance. Let's talk about how, you know, what was it that Trump said, right? There are good people and bad people on, on both sides, right? But I think a lot of us would take issue with, with that framing if you're actually, you know, looking at white supremacy systemically. Yeah, the phrase equal opportunity surveillance does not sound that appetizing to me. <laughs> that, does, right? that, that does not sound right at all. We are speaking with Fatima Ahmad, co-author of an article at the Progressive Magazine titled The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. And so when it does come to the history of targeting certain political beliefs, when it comes to uh, the FBI or the state uh, targeting them for surveillance or detention, you write that COINTELPRO, the FBI's political surveillance program that targeted anti-war and black power movements, among others, during the civil rights era, is one of the most well-known historic examples of this. But COINTELPRO, that was, Fatima, that was way back in the 60s and 70s. To what extent is this kind of one-sided political surveillance by the FBI a thing of the past? Because there were hearings following the revelations of COINTELPRO to try to rein in the power of the FBI. So to what extent is this one-sided political surveillance by the FBI, a thing of the past? Yeah, it's definitely not a thing of the past, right? Um, I think how we really need to think about it is this was always the entire purpose of the FBI. So thankfully, I think a lot more people know about COINTELPRO now, but actually, and, and this speaks to what I was just talking about, about being extremely against uh, white supremacy, the predecessor to COINTELPRO from the FBI was surveillance of Muslims in the 1930s. They came upon, uh, I think an agent, you know, came upon the Moorish Science Temple and found that they, you know, had materials that stated that they were explicitly against white supremacy. And the FBI, sort of the early concept of the FBI at the time said, you know, they are fanatics of racial equality. And they launched this, I think one of their first, if not the first surveillance program uh, where they produced a report called the Racial Conditions of North America. They were very concerned about this, you know, Muslimness as both seen as both foreign and political that, you know, black people were reverting or reclaiming Islam and becoming really political. And also they were concerned about them connecting with communists or with Japanese Americans or anybody else who was, uh, you know, standing up uh, for their rights and really standing up to white supremacy. So I think it's important to understand, like, that's the whole point of the FBI, it always has been, and that's not changing anytime soon, right? And then you see it post 9-11. I think whereas in the past, you could have said, well, you know, that even with what the FBI did with COINTELPRO, they were going after, you know, what they saw as political groups. 
post 9-11, this expands in such a way with targeting the Muslim community where, you know, the FBI has been like all up in every mosque and every Muslim communal space, right? It becomes quite liter literally a joke in the community that, um, you know, if you meet a new person at the mosque and they seem really eager to talk to you about your politics and what you think about the war abroad, you know, that that's probably an FBI informant. You know, they are just massively infiltrating uh, and entrapping Muslims, right? Not, not the political ones even, right? Actually often targeting um, those who are mentally ill and might be susceptible um, you know, to their, to, to their sort of schemes. And then what you have, you know, once this becomes like kind of clear and known to the community, again, to the point where Muslims joke about it. Um, and I think if you watch any predominantly Muslim, uh, media, you'll, you'll, I'm sure you will hear a joke about something like that, but Muslims were even like reporting these people back to the FBI, right? And then what is the FBI going to say? Like, just kidding, that, that was one of our people. So what they do next, and, you know, I think, I think it's really important for progressives to understand this about countering violent extremism or see something, say something, or suspicious activity reporting, these all fall within this new model of deputizing everybody to surveil, right? If the FBI can't send one of their own people or pay someone in the community to do the surveillance because now it's just so obvious, then the next level is, you know, mass surveillance, right? Convince the community to do it to themselves, right? Go and train teachers and therapists and tell them like, you're doing the right thing, right? Like see something, say something. What an incredibly powerful uh, program that they have, right? They don't even have to tell you what it is that you need to see that's suspicious, right? Because they know that you know what's suspicious, right? It's Black people just being Black, right? Just living their lives. And then you have white folks calling the cops on them. It's Muslim folks or people who they think are Muslim just getting on an airplane or getting on public transportation and just being Muslim, then they get reported on. So I think not only, you know, was this always the purpose of the FBI and they absolutely have, you know, continued, uh, you know, doing this um, in massive ways to both Muslims. And again, I think, you know, we've seen clear targeting of like Black Lives Matter activists um, and so many, you know, movement activists. But now, yeah, this new model is all about just deputizing everybody, right? Um, really outsourcing <laughs> uh, surveillance to everyone. That sounds so much like, you know, it harkens back to all of the demonizing of the Soviet Union and how everybody was spying on each other. Even family members would spy on each other. When East Germany fell, they went through all the Stasi uh, documentation and they found out that people within families would be actually spying on one another. And the other, mem other family members had no idea that they had been deputized by the state. So what happens to a community when members are deputized to report what they consider suspicious activity by their neighbors. Do those communities become 
more safe or does surveillance by neighbors undermine security and stability? It has, yeah, it's already undermined community, right? I think there's a lot to say for the word security. And, you know, that really de depends on how, how you define it, right? But we have already seen these initiatives really um, disrupt community. I think, you know, even when it was the FBI informants, right, some of those people, you know, they grew relationships with folks in the community, right? You may have been in a romantic relationship with somebody who you didn't know was an informant, or you might have grown close to them and invited them to your wedding, right? That is so devastating, right? To then find out, actually, this person isn't who I thought they were, and they were reporting on me this whole time. And that's like, the much more blatantly uh, terrible version of it. And again, I think there's been so many stories of this now that, that people can see. But yeah, even the CVE, countering violent extremism model of it now, where you might not know that your therapist was trained by the FBI and your therapist thinks that they're doing you know, a good thing. Like they don't see themselves as an informant. They see themselves as, you know, someone doing their, their civic duty. And they've been told, well, you know, if this person has had trouble keeping a job and that they've had trouble with their personal relationships and they're talking about politics a lot, like maybe they're talking about Palestine or Black Lives Matter a lot, that, that those are signs, right, of becoming violent. You know, they believe that. And meanwhile, you're just, you know, a regular millennial or Gen Z person who, you know, is talking about politics. And of course, you can't keep a job uh, in, in this day and age, right? So we've had lots of young people in particular and Muslims in particular who have said, how can I trust anybody, you know? Um, there were programs here in Boston where, you know, organizations, nonprofits would get these grants. And of course, they're not telling people, hey, this new program for Somali youth, it's based on this application we wrote where we said that they're prone to becoming terrorists. You know, they're not, that's not in the, in the pamphlet that they're handing out. And then we would uncover these applications and Somali youth would read it and say like, how could this be, right? How are they getting all of this money to criminalize us, right? We don't, we don't deserve funding just because we're seen as like a ticking time bomb, right? We deserve community. We deserve to feel empowered and not just seen as, um, as inherently violent. And I think often when we talk about surveillance, uh, you know, a framing that I actually hate is the idea of privacy. You know, people saying, well, you know, we deserve privacy. But in reality, what, what's happened to the Muslim community in particular is this like deeply uh, traumatic psychological thing, right? Where you feel like you're being watched all the time. You actually become a very extremely private person because you don't know who you can trust even within your own communities, right? We don't even feel comfortable in our own mosques, right? Like, the idea of sanctuary doesn't apply to Muslim spaces, even our religious spaces. So really what we're fighting for is community, 
right? We want to be able to have community. We want to be able to have our spaces. We want to be able to be politically active um, and to be able to speak out against injustice, again, without being labeled as, you know, quote unquote, violent extremists. And we deserve that. You write of surveillance and profiling by law enforcement to address white supremacist and white nationalist violence. We have to simultaneously dismantle these systems while working to build up genuine community safety. That means not only opposing expansion of law enforcement powers and the counterterrorism complex, but also creating alternatives on the ground to support real community needs. And I'll ask you about those alternatives in just a moment. But does the counterterrorism complex right now have bipartisan support? Can we vote the counterterrorism complex out of power? And if not, what does it say today about our democracy here in the United States? It definitely has bipartisan support. Yeah, I think um, voting it out is is quite a task. Whereas I will say, you know, again, there's some rising sentiment amongst Republicans where they they want to oppose some of the programming that they feel is going to target them. But by far, you know, it has bipartisan support in the same way that Islamophobia is bipartisan, right? Like everyone uh, buys into these narratives that Muslims are inherently violent, that we need to invade, you know, these other um, these other countries that this violence was was justified. Um, I think, yeah, there, you know, both both sides are very pro-war and pro-national security. You also point out that Muslim opposition to the counter extremism model has been loud and clear since the start. The local winds in cities across the country, such as in Minneapolis and Los Angeles, these communities and others targeted by increased state surveillance have responded by organizing at the grassroots level. So, and you also mentioned this approach approach has provided communities with the tools to stand together and challenge anti-Muslim surveillance, discrimination, and targeting by the government. So what are those tools that can protect members of the community from anti-Muslim surveillance? I think one of the biggest tools and both, you know, my organization, uh, Project South, who supported that op-ed, Uh, do this is knowing what to do when the FBI shows up. We do so many trainings on, you know, how can you uh, deal with this uncomfortable situation of the FBI knocking at your door, which again, happens to Muslims every day, right? Not, not for being political, just, just for being Muslim. So we help people understand, you know, you don't have to talk to them. You shouldn't let them in. And, you know, call us and we'll help you get an attorney. I think that's one really concrete way. But I think the, you know, broader thing is grassroots organizing. And that's my organization's model, really, Um, you know, is helping folks understand what is systemic Islamophobia, right? Uh, Really unpacking that given that it is widespread, that it is very much accepted um, by by all people, helping people be able to identify that systemically and then push back um, against these programs uh, has been, you know, really powerful. Because again, these models basically say that, you know, if a Muslim is political, that that's inherently dangerous or violent. 
you know, that they might become a terrorist. So there's something really beautiful about subverting that and saying, actually, I am going to organize against this. Actually, I am going, uh, you know, to speak out against this. I, I always tell people like, you know, what the FBI was worried about in the 1930s. I am a fanatic of racial equality. Like, come at me for it. <laughs> That's awesome. And, you know, uh, well, just one thing I wanted to mention before I ask you the last question is uh, the last question that we always ask our listeners or our guests. And I'll tell you about that in a second. But uh, the neighborhood that we are broadcasting from right now, where we have our studios, where I moved to in 2003, when I just moved to this neighborhood, I asked people, what was it like on 9-11 in this neighborhood? This is a predominantly South Asian neighborhood. Uh, with it's split between Muslims, which are the majority over and Hindus as well. So what happened to this neighborhood? It's on Devon Avenue. Devon Avenue connects the beginning of Lakeshore Drive, the north end of Lakeshore Drive with the northwestern suburbs. So a lot of people from the suburbs take this avenue over to Lakeshore Drive to get to their work downtown. And they said in the morning, it just looked like Devon always looks. Devon Avenue always looks. There was nothing different. At night, every business had an American flag hang out in front of it. And that wasn't based on simply 9-11, and that's one of the things that you brought up that I think is really important, as you were just bringing up just now, is this was a history dating back to the 1930s of Muslims knowing that law enforcement agencies within the United States were anti-Muslim, had been profiling Muslims. This wasn't just an outcome of 9-11. This was an outcome dating back to the 1930s. And I think that's something that everybody needs to remember, that this is not something new within the United States. This is something that's been going on for almost a century now. So Fatima uh, Ahmad has been our guest. She is co-author of an article at The Progressive titled The Surveillance State Can't Solve White Supremacy. She is the executive director at the Muslim Justice League. And uh, you can follow uh, Fatima on Twitter at Fatima A. Ahmad. Uh, and find out more about the Muslim Justice League at muslimjusticeleague.org. So our final question that we have for each and every one of our guests, I promise, is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Fatima, do we have to give up some of our freedoms to be safe? Don't we have to choose between, say, security or and I know you don't like this term, privacy. How can we have security without sacrificing a bare minimum amount of our rights? That's such a great question. I, I was worried about what, what is this question from Damn hell? Damn it. Though? I always want it to be more hellish, and people I've been, <laughs> I've been disappointing myself lately. No, I love it because that's what people think, right? We all think, well, you know, we have to give some of this up. And actually... It has now flipped. Um, I just saw a survey, I think from YouGov maybe, um, where you know now Republicans are saying you know they don't want to give up um, their their rights and liberties to address terrorism, and actually Democrats were more uh, you know more likely to say yes, we should give up our, our some of our rights. Um, for addressing domestic terrorism. Good Lord. I'm sure that's very different than it was, uh, you know, um, maybe 10 years ago. But again, I think by far everybody accepts surveillance for some reason. We're just like a very uh, pro-surveillance country. And I don't think we have to give things up. I think we have to actually envision a 
whole new way of being, right? And a way of understanding what actually is safety, right? What if we think about it as wellness, right? What if we actually address the root causes of violence? And that's so much of what our work, uh, you know, my organization as an abolitionist organization is rooted in, understanding that we can actually, you know, uproot these systems and create a new way of being where we don't address violence with more violence, right? We actually figure out how are we, you know, really going to take this on? And then how are we creating, you know, the infrastructure to make sure that people have what they, what they need to actually be safe? Because so much of the counterterrorism machine, the national security complex, it's actually just about the illusion of safety at the expense of other people's, you know, rights, right? Like, we're not a safe country, right? We're an incredibly violent country, both here in our borders and abroad. Um, so I don't, I don't know how people think that, you know, we're going to feel any safer with more policing or more surveillance because it hasn't worked. Um, but I think that, you know, there is a whole other way, um, of being, and it's really hard for people to get into that space of feeling creative and, and being, you know, getting into their imagination and thinking outside of, uh, of what they've always seen, uh, but we really have to do that. And that's, yeah, part of our, our organizing at, at MJL. Fatima, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I, I really want to have you back on because this conversation has been absolutely fantastic. If you have any kind of a mailing list or anything that you would like to put us on, please do, because this has really been an incredible conversation. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for being on our show today. And just I'd just like to say hello to all the members of the Department of Homeland Security and FBI who are listening in right now. I truly appreciate their listening as well. They should subscribe to our Patreon podcast. Thank you very much, Fatima. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Take Bye. care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell if what you just heard from Fatima on expanding the surveillance state in response to January 6th. If that made you realize, yes, this really is Hell, subscribe to our bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell, or you can show your support for a completely listener supported this is hell by visiting this is hell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. And that was a fantastic guest. Wasn't that good? That, that was, was amazing. That was really, really good. That I was striking. I reminded my, uh, my wife, Miriam, uh, uh, contributed to this art exhibit down in Bridgeview where there's a huge Muslim diasporic mm -hmm. community and the the art exhibit was all these FOIA requests they'd gotten for this sort of Chicago FBI um, operation called uh, Operation Vulgar Betrayal. Oh Jesus. It's called, right, I guess putting their liberal arts degrees to use and like <laughs> wow. but it was like a maze. They had made a maze in this Muslim community center down in Bridgeview where you walked through like all these reports that they had FOIA'd. It was like wallpapering the walls and it was just like stuff like 
you know, harassing people, watching people take their kid to the hospital, but like to see the reports and walk through them was was really striking. That was cool. That's very sounds very cool. Yeah. Okay, so what's the question from hell? Question from hell is what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? Over at Facebook, Borky B says, "Vote for Bob Dole." <laughs> A little late on that one. <laughs> Andrea J uh, says, "Drink." She thought that her, she she thought to herself that the answer was in the question. <laughs> Uh, David Z says unionize the villages. <laughs> okay. Mark S says libertarians say buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Jack B says start a conservative talk show <laughs> called This Is Heaven. <laughs> and Mora H says ominously join them. <laughs> that Over, is creepy. We've got a few at Twitter. Uh, Korg says avoid all holidays with family. Okay. Turby McTurbyface says I feel strongly that it is time he gave his vast wealth away to the listeners. Bank details to follow. Wait, I have money in a bank somewhere? I guess so. <laughs> Turby thinks so. Who knew? And the very nice Hadas Tier recent guest says happy birthday, Chuck. Oh, there you go. <laughs> that works out. So that's that. Those are the responses to you, this week's question. You from can Mel. still leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page or tweet it to us. Uh, and uh, we'll have uh, we'll be announcing the winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, which is coming up in just a couple of seconds. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. On Thursday's Patreon, our conversation with Sophie Lewis about her book, Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation, was... As the title of her book suggests, provocative, intentionally causing strong reaction, just like our conversation the previous week with Andrea Vetter and Matthias Schmelzer on their book, The Future of Degrowth. They're purposely provocative to get a conversation going. But uh, both, at least in my opinion, hope to get us talking and thinking about what an alternative world could be and should look like. Specifically, Sophie's writing got me thinking about not only what family means and what being part of family entails, but also thoughts on what happiness is and what love should and could be. So this week on Patreon, it's all about family. Well, not all about family. It's also about family and its relationship to love and happiness and maybe just maybe how all of those can be achieved without all the baggage that capitalist society puts on each. And I got to admit, I'm probably going to be talking about uh, what is safety after our conversation with Fatima and how violence begets violence and how if we're going to approach safety through violence, then it's just going to lead to less safety. Also on Patreon, right around 15 years ago, we spoke with writer and author Stan Cox on the show to talk about his then just published article, Big Houses Are Not Green, uh, Are Not Green. America's McMansion problem. Uh, most recently, he has written a book with his son, Paul, he uh, co-author of How the World Breaks, Life in Catastrophe's Path from the Caribbean to Siberia. In other words, Stan's plant, he's a plant breeder as well, which is crazy, but Stan's plant breeding has made him acutely aware of many of our environmental challenges of the last few decades. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our stuff at thisishell.com when you click on support. But you also get immediate access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts with each and every one featuring a monologue by me and a classic interview that currently is not available online anywhere else, but you can only hear all that by subscribing to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell.com. Coming up, Jeff, with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll be announcing the winner as well and telling you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is hell, and I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, three.
Super Truth, The Clowns of the Lost Dauphine. Super Truth has brought low the mighty human race. Super Truth has turned reality into insanity. Super Truth has turned insanity into anxiety. So at least the insane are motivated to go to work. At least anxiety forces us to find a way to function, to search for that which will relieve our anxiety. Life is a disease, and there's only one cure. But since most of us fear death, we'll have to settle for super truth. When skies hang pendulous leaden clouds of unnatural hue, seas skip like rams and leap and bow like fire-worshipping devils, the atmosphere groans fat and snappish with negative ions, the barometer uncoils, fright wigs are on edge, and pancake white refuses to be applied evenly to faces beaded with flop condensation, and all the world's stage feels burdened by a furrowed lowbrow glower redolent with the sense that too much time has been borrowed. The usurious interest is overdue, and the gas gauge reads that your luck has run out. That is when the lost Dauphine is sighted, bearing its unhappy driver and four dozen eternal passengers, cursed to ride the storm clouds, galloping heavy over the big top forever. It had been a bad year for clowns. Chuckles, dressed as Peter Peanut, had been fatally shelled by an angry elephant who'd had enough of human shenanigans. Pennywise had his heart pulled out by the Losers Club. Octavio the Clown was killed by Frank Lopez's hitman in an unsuccessful attempt on the life of Tony Montana. Violator the Clown's head was cut off by Spawn. Krusty was eaten by zombie Sideshow Mel. A posse of Penn State students rampaged with the intent to lynch a thousand clowns, but only got the unfortunate Bippo. But the worst clowniclism of all was the notorious disaster of the Dauphine. In September of 1989, tragedy struck the non-clown community. 31-year-old Leslie Pulhar, a waitress from Royal Oak, Michigan, was driving across the Mackinac Bridge to visit her boyfriend in the Upper Peninsula. The bridge runs high above the Straits of Mackinac, connecting the Upper Peninsula of Michigan with the Lower. To this day, no one knows why the two are part of the same state. Perhaps the thinking was that, as two peninsulas, they had so much in common they simply belonged together. Whatever the reason, Pilar died when her Yugo was blown off the bridge by a 48-mile-an-hour gust of wind that sent it plummeting 160 feet into the freshwater straits below. Not one week later, 48 clown passengers and one hobo clown driver named Bum Steer piled into a classic Renault Dauphine. Despite the shadow of Pilar's death hanging over them, 
They had agreed to confront the gloomy prospect of driving yet another economy car over the very same bridge. What had led them to make this decision? Well, they were the Ypsilanti Clown College class of 89, after all, they'd been trained for this. They were determined to attend the well-above-the-45th-parallel Midwest Clowning Convention in Escanaba. Perhaps they felt their combined weight would give them stability and prevent them from suffering the same tragic fate as Pilar. But does a clown car impossibly stuffed with an absurd number of clowns actually achieve the total weight of the clowns, or does the absurdity collapse them into a six-dimensional kalabi yao manifold, according to the theories they were surely taught by Professor Daisy Floppytopper at Ipsy, sharing out most of their mass into other dimensions? But clown subquantum physics was moot. They never found the opportunity to apply it, because Bum Steer, the sad hobo clown, driver of the Dauphine, was aptly named. Once they passed through Petoskey, a strangely persistent fog enveloped them. Bum Steer lost track of the surface of the highway itself. It was as though they were suspended in a uniformly gray-white limbo. This went on for hours. How do we know what they experienced? One clown, little Pip, somehow managed to crawl through the ventilation system, out of the grill, and jumped in panic to freedom, and watched as the Dauphine, with the rest of the class of 89, slipped out of sight like a carp into a pool of cream. Little Pip found himself afloat in the lake, at the vertex of an expanding horizon that stretched away into infinity. He treaded water there, his body going numb with cold, his mind falling into a madness in which visions of Hiawatha, Hemingway, and the ghosts of the Chippewa sang Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald to him on Endless Loop. Little Pip was pulled out of Little Traverse Bay, off the coast of Harbor Springs, on the verge of dying from hypothermia. He fell into a coma that lasted a week and a half. Afterwards, he told his tale to a local journalist in a single afternoon. That night, little Pip's heart mysteriously stopped beating with the abruptness of an alternator seizing up. His face was frozen in a mask of terror. His dead eyes bulged from their sockets. What had he seen? There are times at night when the sky threatening a storm has displayed the unappealing colors of bruises on a battered body, bruised brooding clouds hanging leaden above the big top of one circus or another, one never knows which, when clowns and other circus folk testify that they have seen the lost Dauphine appear. Bum steer at the wheel, the knuckles of his gloves frayed, his eyes below the brim of his worn-out bowler hat are red and all but molten with tears. His painted frown drips down his jowls. The faces, nose, shoes, knees, and hats of the magically packed passengers press in chaotic discomfort against the window glass. One white-gloved hand reaches out of a partially open window, waving, now and then honking a bicycle horn or flaunting a rubber chicken. 
It is said that if you stick out your thumb, hitchhiker style, and in particular, if that thumb is comically oversized, and moreover, covered in a white glove, the lost dauphine may descend from the clouds. You might find it idling beside you. And the legend is that if you don't flee from it as fast as your gangly legs and floppy feet will transport you, the gloved hand will pull you in through the window into the six-dimensional Kalabi Yao manifold, and you will ride with the class of 89 aboard the lost Dauphine for eternity. This has been the Moment of Truth. Good day. That's 100% certified truth by your friends here at This Is Hell. Uh, Jeffy, you are coming to town when? I'm coming to town on the 18th, but then I'm going to Detroit to harass my parents for a couple days, and then I'm back on the uh, 24th, I guess. Are you going to the Van Gogh show at the DIA? There's a Van Gogh show. Seventy-four paintings from around the world that have never been shown in one place at the same time are going to be at the Detroit Institute of Arts. In fact, I was just speaking with somebody who went. uh, Pete said that he knew friends of his that were in the Netherlands and they were really excited about seeing the Van Gogh show there. And they realized there was no Van Gogh show because it was all in Detroit. So there's a gigantic show going on right now at the Detroit Institute of Arts. (laughs) Wow, I don't know if I'm even going to have time to do that because I'm going to be stopping in Ann Arbor on the way. Yeah, but your mom's an artist. I bet it'll be easy to get her to go. Yeah, but we got a meeting on Sunday, and it's this meeting with my brother and sister all about, like, probate stuff. Uh, I'm I'm anti-bait. You know that, right? (laughs) I don't blame you. All right, Jeffy. Yeah. Oh, hey, you know, I heard uh, 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 Brian Muir on... uh, Left Reckoning, okay, uh, talking about why Lula's win was a good thing, despite what the American press might say. Yes, and even though Bolsonaro did a lot better than I thought he was going to do. Yeah, you know, but you know, Lula was ahead by like ten points, I think, um, in a lot of polls, and he was he came out ahead. By more than five points, he's got a huge lead, and he's expected to win. He's going to win. Sure, but I'm not holding my breath. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I mean, barring violence and other hijinks <laughs> by the Bolsonaros, Bolsonaro, Bolsonaristas? No, I don't know. I don't know what you call it. It's probably something in Portuguese. I think it's Jagoffs. Yeah, I think, and I think you do pronounce the J because it's Portuguese. It's not. <laughs> That's right. It's not Yagoffs or Hagoffs. All right, Jeffy. Until next yeah. time. Okay. Stay beautiful. Oh. Oh. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people. This is hell. Dan, what is this week's question from hell, and do we have any more responses from our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he's finally old enough to drink? We do have one last response from Roy O. He says, uh, drink what exactly? (laughs) That's a good Uh. point. I'm going straight to huffing kerosene myself. (laughs) The answers I liked the most were uh, Chris H. saying, Hemlock? Question mark. Sloan L saying, go back to bed. John T 
This is an answer I didn't really get when uh, uh, Lindsay was reading it earlier this week because I don't have... (laughs) I can't afford another computer to have one here in the interview booth with me, so I couldn't read it as she was reading it. John T. answers, be at least partially in the bag on a regional spirit of the location of his current interviewee. And then he gives a list of regional spirits. Arak, A-R-A-K, Arak, A-R-R-A-C-K, they're both like, uh, not licorice, but uh, flavored uh, liqueurs that you can get from the Middle East. Uh, kachaka, rakia, shochu, soju, sotal, all of these are liqueurs from around the world. And George B. Singh saying, breathe and smile, repeat as necessary. Again, the question from hell, what should our beloved host Chuck do with his life now that he is finally old enough to drink? And this week's winner is John T, because you must have done a lot of research in order to get all of those regional spirits into your answer to this week's question from hell. Thank you, John T. You are the winner. Just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want uh, from this that's available right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we'll get that in the mail to you as soon as possible. My answer to this week's question from hell is, well, my original answer was just buy more lottery tickets, but... And I know this sounds incongruent for someone who hosts a radio show, live stream, and podcast named This Is Hell. I will be, and I will be talking about this a bit more in depth on this week's Patreon podcast tomorrow. Despite the hellish content of our show and how too often it flies in the face of what is called news by the establishment corporate mainstream media that surrounds us every day, I'm going to do my very best at being more happy. I know, go figure. Thanks to everyone who sent in their answer to this week's question from hell. Dan, who are our currently scheduled guests to be on next week's show. Next week, Elias Nalandish will be on to talk about his article at The Intercept. I watched the Afghan government collapse under the weight of its own greed. Our leaders failed to give Afghan soldiers the food, tools, and respect they needed to defeat a brutal insurgency. Elias is a Afghan is an Afghanistan observatory scholar at New America. Since 2014, he has worked with the Kabul-based Etalat Raz daily newspaper, where he is currently the online chief editor, supervising a team of 20 journalists. Previously, he served as news manager, investigative reporter, and text editor for Etalat Raz. He has produced around 160 reports and editorials, including 12 major investigations on politics, security, human rights, rule of law, corruption, and abuse of state resources by former Afghan government officials. And then on Wednesday, theologian ordained minister and anti-poverty activist Liz Theo Harris will be on to discuss her Tom Dispatch article, No More Sacrifices, Mercy Makes Good Policy. Liz is co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival and director of the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. She is author of Always With Us, Was What Jesus Really Said About the Poor, and We Cry Justice, Reading the Bible with the Poor People's Campaign. I know, crazy, right? A show called This Is Hell is going to have a Christian theologian on the show. See, that's why, even for atheists, this is hell. Thanks to this week's producers, Dan Hill, Lindsey Gorey, Sebastian Vupras. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth, to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Thanks to Alexander Jerry and to Theron Humiston, just because. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I'll be sharing my thoughts on family, love, and happiness under capitalism, as well as 
some thoughts on the idea of safety as well. And an interview from 2007 with author Stan, Stan Cox on the McMansion problem in the United States, which you would think people would have figured out by now some 15 years later, but apparently not because I keep seeing get built on a regular basis. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.